Yeah, someone saw my music stand. <laughs> Blink, and then I just spook it out from under my nose. That's how it is at a church. Yeah. All right. Thank you, sir. All right, how are you guys doing? Enjoying the frigid Idaho air? I, um, I'm actually, yeah, it's a little too warm for you guys. I don't know, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. So right now, um, I get a little update on my phone. Oh, there we go. Every morning around 8 a.m., it rolls across the screen on my phone and tells me the weather forecast in Phoenix. I think this morning it was a balmy 61 degrees. So I'm in a little bit of culture shock and weather shock. They drive a lot faster down there, too. My dad always gets a little freaked out when I drive with him because I drive like a Phoenix driver and just can't afford to mess around down there. But around here, it seems like there's been at least five times already this week that I've got caught behind a farmer on 4300 just driving, just kind of checking out all the fields. Like, oh, no, I'm in Idaho again. So... Anyways, I just wanted to share with you guys a little bit about the work I'm doing. Um, I'm a missionary associate with the Assemblies of God U.S. Missions. And so I'm a missionary, but unlike a traditional missionary, I don't work in a hut in Africa or anything like that. Um, I work on a college campus, Arizona State University. So it's not a foreign country. It might seem like it to some of y'all because Phoenix is a whole different ballgame down there. Um, But yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I work with a ministry called Chi Alpha Christian Fellowship. They're a national organization, but they also have um, they have campuses or they have ministries in college campuses all over the U.S. as well as a few internationally. They're working on just getting into all kinds of crazy places internationally as well as um, in the states. Um, basically, campus ministry is kind of similar to what a lot of people call it a glorified youth group, um, but we kind of like to steer away from that because really it's one of like the most intense forms of church that I've ever been a part of, because um, really we do weekly meetings on Wednesday nights where everyone kind of comes together from all over the campus, um, but we also have small group Bible studies throughout the week, and um, we also uh, participate in one-on-one discipleship with our student leaders, because what we really want to do is foster a community of leadership um, and just a really cool community where students can come and really uh, just get ministered to and become disciples of Jesus. Um, so just a little bit of my background. I uh, have been coming to Calvary Chapel Buell since I was, I think I was 15 when we started attending regularly. Um, I played on the worship band with Fritz and Joni forever. And uh, ever since I was 14 or 15, I've felt a real strong call on my heart just to be in world missions because I love languages and culture and I want to go be a missionary someday overseas. Uh, but when I graduated from college this May, I really felt like God was challenging me to um, go the missionary route which means I have to do all the fun stuff of support raising and uh, living on very little. But um, he said, I want you to do it at Arizona State University with the ministry that helped you grow so much so that I can be able to give back some of the investment that was poured into me before I move on to anything, I guess, bigger and better. But it's really not that much bigger or better because the college campus ministry is actually a pretty strategic place, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, Actually, I'll just go ahead and jump right into that. Um, A lot of times people are like, why the heck would you want to go to a college campus and minister to college students? They're spoiled, overprivileged brats. They live in luxury. You know, they don't have to grow up for another four years. They're still taking their laundry to their mom's house on the weekends. What's the deal with a college kid? Why do they need to be ministered to? Um, But there are several reasons that um, college campus is actually probably one of the most strategic places that we could send missionaries to. The first one is that college campuses... um, are pumping out the future leaders of the country and really the world. Um, I graduated from the Honors College, and I can't even begin to tell you some of the crazy scientists that I was a part um, was able to go to class with. Some of these kids um, are doing crazy research on like stem cells, insane things. They're going to cure cancer, these college students someday. And so, the more that we can influence them with the love of Christ and um, just really invest them those values of servant leadership and being like a real disciple and give them those Christian values, um, the more likely they are going to be able to go and bring that into the marketplace. So really those leaders are a huge investment that we want to um, just really pour a lot into, just pour out the love of Christ and reach them. Um, Secondly, um, whether you are aware of it or not, um, especially at the college level, very few people have actually had um, an encounter with the real Jesus. 
there are some, there's a small percentage of students who come from a church background, but um, more and more the statistics are showing that students um, may have heard about Jesus, but usually they've been presented with a skewed view of the gospel or a very jaded view. Um, so really what we want to do is be able to show them the authentic love of Christ and really show them um, a lot of students who have never even heard of Jesus or been um, encountered the gospel before. We want to be able to give them that opportunity to come to faith. Um, a third reason is there are a ton of international students, which that's one of my passions is to be able to go reach out to the, the foreigners in our country because it's a lot of fun to kind of be able to come alongside these international students who probably have never been invited into American home. Um, we participate every year. We do a Thanksgiving dinner, invite international students to come to probably one of the only opportunities they'll have to celebrate an American holiday because um, most of them end up just studying a lot in their apartments, especially all the Asian kids. All they do is study. So we have to kind of drag them along. Come have fun with us. Come see what America is like and not the book side of things. But it's good times. Um, the fourth one uh, reason that I think is really near and dear to my heart, um, I came out of a church background, and there are a lot of kids who did come out of a church background who come to college. But the statistics are showing that between 80 and 90% of students who come to college who are from a faith background will lose their faith in college. So that's 80 to 90%. So 8 out of 10 kids who come to college who um, were Christians will probably walk away from their faith. And I want to change that statistic because I believe that um, the leaders in churches like Calvary Chapel, the youth leaders, um, have invested too much in the youth of, uh, of the church to, want to, let, to make that investment go to waste. Um, so I want to be there to be able to um, pick up where they left off and really um, empower these, these kids. Um, my roommate right now actually um, was really... Uh, she wasn't planning, she was a student, um, and she wasn't planning on really following God in college. She kind of thought like most ASU students, she would probably get wrapped up in partying and just that kind of thing because she, she loved Jesus and she really wanted to follow him, but she didn't think that God could exist on a college campus, and so she had really lost hope. But it was really cool when we finally met her during an outreach and she joined the, the club, she was able to kind of get, um, avoid that path. And now she's really following God and really serving him, really making a huge impact. Um, which is kind of what um, kind of what we're all about. So I want to give you a little bit of a taste of what ASU is like. I've already kind of hit on the really awesome weather and the crazy driving. Um, but Arizona State University is in the city of Tempe, which is a little suburb of Phoenix. It all kind of meshes together down there, and it's pretty crazy. There's several million people in that valley, just in that little valley alone, in a little 10-mile radius. Um, but there are 60,000 students on the Tempe campus alone. Thousands of international students, so literally in a little one-mile radius, or a little one-square-mile, um, the entire world is represented at that college campus. Um, there's a lot of alcoholism, which is kind of stereotypical of college. ASU is probably one of the crazier ones, and they're kind of famous for that. Every year, the college um, hosts what's called the Undie Run. Um, in the springtime, the day before finals start, um, all the students get together for what they call a charity event. But basically what they do is they all gather together, throw a huge drunken party where they take off their clothes, donate them to charity, and then they just party. It's right there on campus. It's sanctioned by the campus. It's crazy. I tried to avoid campus that day. Um, it just so happened that the night of the undie run was the night that my small group was hosting on campus. So I had to ride my bike and try and avert the crazy crowds of drunk people in their underwear wandering around. It was like Night of the Living Dead, only instead of zombies, there are people. Well, they, they were zombies. They're all pretty drunk. But this is kind of the hopeless kind of atmosphere that you have to work in. It's just a lot of, a lot of alcoholism and drugs is pretty much a part of the culture, and it's normal. It's expected there between 10 and 20 bars on Mill Avenue, which is the street that borders along the college campus. Um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty normal thing for kids to go out, and that's what they do is they just they party and get drunk. That's their way of being accepted. That's their way of coping with all their hurt and pain and everything. Um, along with that, I lived in the dorms for two years, and so I kind of got a little bit of a flavor when I went to college there of what uh, the dorm atmosphere is like, and there's a lot of loneliness and a lot of hopelessness in that place. It's really sad. Um, you can be surrounded by thousands of students but really not talk to anybody for a whole week. It's pretty easy to stay isolated and to only see your classmates when you go to class and not even say much to them. Um, and atheism is a pretty prevalent thing on college campuses. There's a very anti-God agenda on the college campus that we're kind of fighting against. Um, but as much as Satan has a hold over the college campus, 
God's also moving. There are several pretty major uh, campus ministries. There's Chi Alpha, which I'm a part of, Campus Crusade, um, Navigators, as well as a couple of on-campus churches that are um, really just doing a lot to reach out and minister to the students. Um, and there's also, in the past several years, we're like really, really excited because there's a 24-hour prayer movement that has started. And so um, pretty much it's expected now and has become a part of the culture that every semester there will be several weeks um, of 24-hour prayer in a little tent in the very middle of campus where students will sign up for slots to pray and um, just pray for the campus and pray for the students. And it goes for 24-7 throughout the week. So it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool thing. And the best part of it is that now this is my job. I get to be a part of um, really changing the lives of those students and changing that atmosphere on campus. So I get to disciple these leaders. I get to meet with them. I get to teach them. Um, I get to disciple these leaders and international students who are going to go out and change the campus. And um, it's pretty fulfilling. But um, how I do that is basically, um, right now we are involved in a lot of small groups, a lot of discipleship, one-on-ones. Those are all just really the vehicle that I feel like God is using to um, work through me. So I have a small group. I meet one-on-one with the leaders. And it's pretty cool. But um, at the very basis of it all, there's kind of a principle that um, one of my mentors taught me. I remember at the very beginning of our, um, our, our large group meeting last semester, um, she, a friend of ours, we had called her and we were like, hey, Joy, it's our first night. We're excited. We're going to like go. And we've invited all these new students. All these freshmen are going to come. We really want them to like just encounter the love of Jesus. And the thing that she told us was, all right, you guys, show up and pay attention. And I was like, oh, that's it? That's like the words of advice you have for me. I'm like this missionary now, and I'm getting ready to go out and like take the campus by force and show up and pay attention. It's like, okay. But the more I've learned um, throughout the, the semester, I'm halfway through, by the way. I've committed to a year, and I have one semester left. So the first semester was just crazy learning experience of just kind of figuring out what does that really mean when she said show up and pay attention. And kind of what um, God has been showing me and kind of what I wanted to share with you guys especially is that God really wants to use us all. He wants to use us all to do miracles. He wants to use us all um, to really further the kingdom of God and be involved in his work. Um, but the very like basis of it is just to show up and pay attention. So first of all, what do I mean by that is um, when you show up, you just really need to make yourself available to God. Um, God promises that when we surrender our lives more fully to him and just give everything and allow the Holy Spirit to come and take over, um, he will use us, but we have to be in that posture where we're submitted to God and we're willing to do, um, do whatever he asks, even if it is a little uncomfortable. Because the more you submit, the more of your life that you let God have and the more parts of your heart you give to him, um, the more uncomfortable it is going to be because we do have to let go of the control. Um, but that's really cool because the more we give him, the more he has to work with and the more he's freed up to just do work through us. Um, it's kind of like, I always like to think of it as being a, a well-trained horse that knows the voice of his master and will obey rather than the mule that has a lot of bad habits and is stubborn and won't do anything that his master tells him. Um, another part of showing up is to be really prepared um, in every situation just to serve God and just say, God, no matter where I'm going, every situation, every trip to the grocery store, every time I show up to work, I want to be prepared. Um, and basically the only way we can do that is by spending time with God. We need to spend a lot of time with Jesus just so we can learn his voice. We need to know the word so that we know um, just what God's heart is and um, just the, very, like, the principles of who he is and his commands and just so we can really be attuned to his voice and be able to hear his voice because um, it's really important that we know his voice. Um, Jesus tells us that the sheep know the master's voice and that's how they're able to go out and do the work that he has for them. And They won't, they won't follow another voice of another. They won't follow an imposter, but they're going to follow his voice. And that's the safest place you can be is when you're following the voice of Jesus. Um, if you're in a leadership position, one thing that I really kind of have held to is that we're to work as though it depends on us, but pray as though it depends on God. So I want to be as prepared as possible in every situation, um, down to the last detail. But when it comes to an actual time that I'm going to meet with a student, when I'm going to um, teach at an event, or when I'm going to speak or lead a teaching, um, basically God is the one who does all the work. So we prepare ourselves, we learn his voice, we know his voice, and that prepares the groundwork so that God can do whatever he wants through us. Um, and the second part is after you've showed up, you just really need to pay attention. Because when you show up anywhere, whether you're in the grocery store, whether you're at work, uh, whether you're in church, God is going to be speaking to you if you're willing to listen. Um, the Holy Spirit really wants to, wants to use us and he wants to speak, speak through us and speak to us. Um, so 
yeah, when we just show up, he's going to direct us and guide us. Um, when we give everything to him, um, when he's the focus and he's the master, he's going to be speaking to us and telling us because um, we, are, we are his friends and his servants. And so he's going to give us directions about what to do. Um, kind of a cool story of this that happened this semester. I was meeting with some student leaders in the basement of the student union. And I sat down and I got there a little early and another one of our student leaders got there a little early. And it was this guy named Clark. So Clark is out there. He's an awesome kid, got a great heart, just needs to be reined in a little. Because once this kid gets started talking, he just doesn't shut up. And it doesn't matter who's listening, he just likes to hear the sound of his own voice and needs to process that way. So I'm sitting down and I'm talking to this kid, Clark, and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, all right. So Clark's talking, and um, about probably about 25 yards away from me, across the room, there was a girl sitting down in a chair. And I just kind of noticed her out of the corner of my eye, and um, I felt like a little inkling in me that maybe God wanted me to talk to her and ask her if I could pray for her. But I was kind of like, oh, no, that's, that's whatever. I'm not going to listen to it. But I'm just sitting there, and this is the only thing I can think about. I, I don't even know what Clark was saying. I forgot. He told me at the time he was actually praying, and I was like, oh, you were praying when I got up and ran? What? But so to, Clark is talking to me, and the more that I'm sitting here, the more I'm seeing. And I just feel like God, it was almost like if the Holy Spirit could take a highlighter and like highlight this girl, that was what it was like. And I was like, I need to go talk to this girl. Why do I feel like I need to go talk to her? And it was almost like if, if an angel could be sitting there with like a big electric neon sign pointing arrows to her, <laughs> it was getting so strong that I was like, oh my goodness, God wants me to go and pray for this girl. So I was like, okay, this is crazy. Clark's still talking to me. And the girl starts to get up. So she starts walking away. And I think that was about the time he was probably praying and I didn't notice. But I jumped up and I ran and I ran down the hall to intersect her. So I met up with this girl, and I grabbed, I didn't grab her, she grabbed me actually, because I was like, hey, my name's Jenny, how's it going? Do you believe in God? This is kind of crazy, but I really feel like God wants me to ask if there's anything I can pray for you. And she grabbed me, and she goes, yeah, she's like, I want you to do two things for me. She's like, first, I want you to pray for me that God would intervene in this situation and work that I have. And I was like, okay. And she said, and the second thing is, I read in the Bible that Jesus heals people when you lay hands on them and pray for them. And I want you to lay hands on me and pray for me because I have a cavity in my tooth and it's really painful. And I don't want to have to pay the money to go to the dentist because I don't have much money. So can you pray for me? And I was like, oh, okay. So I pulled her over to where the other student leaders were gathering. And I said, hey, guys, this is this girl, Regina. Can we pray for her? So we laid hands on her and prayed for her. And um, she said, yeah, thank you so much. And she was crying. She said, I've been praying that God would send me someone to pray for me because I read in the Bible that when you lay hands on people, when Jesus, Jesus would heal people when they laid hands on them. So I've been praying that God would send me someone. So we're all like, whoa, hey, this is really cool. We were in answer to her prayer. And so I, I gave her my phone number and I said, hey, you said you have a dentist appointment tomorrow. Can you, you know, if anything happens, let me know. Get in contact with me. So, so she left, and um, I didn't hear anything for a couple weeks, so I was a little bit like, oh, at least I was obedient. At least, like, her faith was answered when we laid hands on her. That was really cool. But I got a text message from this girl. She said, hey, it's Regina. I met you in the student union. I went to the dentist, and my cavity was totally healed. And I was like, whoa, oh, my gosh. So, like, yay, God. So I really think that that's something that um, God wants to do in the lives of every believer is just to really get them to where um, they're submitted to the Holy Spirit and they know his voice so that we can be able to do the work that he has prepared for us. Because every single person has been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus for a purpose, even if it's in something small and every day is asking someone if you can pray for them, even if it's like giving your waitress a little bit larger tip and an encouraging note, um, if it's just kind of being able to be there for a coworker when they're having a bad time. Um, it's all about just showing up and letting God use you and really paying attention and listening to his voice. Um, so if I, if I could, this is just the, that's about all I have, but I want to pray for you guys that God would um, empower you guys and, um, yeah, just draw you into a deeper relationship with him and use you more, especially in this community where I grew up. It's important to me to see a lot of need, and I see Calvary Chapel filling that need, and I just want to pray that God would empower you guys more. So, Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity that I have to just share with this church family. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for how much you've used them to bless me over the, over the years. Um, and even now as they're just supporting me in my ministry at ASU. And, Jesus, I just want to ask that um, you would come and just begin to um, inspire everyone here tonight. And, Lord, just really inspire them um, 
to first dig deeper in your word and get to know you more, Jesus, and to have a closer walk with you. Um, and then in the midst of that, God, inspire them that you have just such a cool plan for their life, um, even in the day-to-day things, Lord, that every day you want to do something in their lives for your kingdom, to further the kingdom. Lord, I ask that you would um, sanctify them more deeply, Jesus, bring them into a closer relationship with you. And I ask that you just give them those small steps, Lord, to begin being faithful. Um, Lord, just ask that you would just um, give them the increased ability to hear your voice. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would come and begin teaching them even more deeply how to hear your voice and how to obey you, um, even in, in the moment, even in an instant. And I just ask that um, through these, these small steps of obedience and faith that they take, that you just use them to do miracles and move mountains in this community, in their jobs, in their families. Um, yeah, in Buell, Idaho, and in, in the Twin Falls County, and wherever they might go from here. I just ask that you would just use them um, as vessels for the kingdom and use them to just further the kingdom of God in this state. Yeah, we just love you, Jesus, and ask your blessing on everyone here tonight, and thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen. You need this? Or? Okay. Okay, sounds good. Let's see if I can get this thing off. If you guys have your Bibles with you tonight, well, you're going to have to turn me down. Woo! You guys have your Bibles with you tonight. I invite you to open up to 1 Samuel, and we'll see where the Lord leads us tonight. Uh, Jackie's plan is uh, 11 and 12, but we'll see. Best laid plans of mice and men, right? We'll see where the Spirit leads us. As we look at 1 Samuel, remember what we've come to. 1 Samuel sets the stage. You have... The nation of Israel coming from a dark period of history, 400 years of ups and downs during the time of the judges. The children of Israel in those days, the scripture says, in those days there is no king in Israel. God was supposed to be their king, but they didn't honor him as king, nor serve him, nor submit or be committed to him in that way. So they had all these struggles, ups and downs. And as we went through the book of Judges, we talk about that. When we look at our own lives and we see that struggle in our relationship with God, lots of peaks and valleys and ups and downs, and there's not that stable walk and stable growth going on with the Lord, we have to ask ourselves, am I committed? Am I submitted to the Lord? Am I 
you know, taking back control and giving control. And as I give control, we, we hit the peaks. We hit the, the time where God's really moving in our life. But then we pull control back and we head down into the dips, you know. And we, we can find that in our life just like the nation of Israel did. But as we come to the end of the time of the judges, the Lord raises up a, a young man named Samuel. Now Samuel was a, a mother's promise to God. If you'll give me a son, I'll give him to you. And when her heart really was changed, that the desire of her heart was to honor the Lord with her child, God gave her a son. And when he's three years old, she gave him back to the Lord. Eli raised him up. Eli wasn't such a good father to his other kids. But you know, the reality is, God's calling, God's blessing was on him. And as we as fathers, we learn things as our, we go down the, the list of our children. My firstborn is experimental. The next one, I had a few things worked out. And, and the next one, I realized I didn't have anything worked out at all. And as we, as we grow and as we learn, we, we learn now, now I'm a, a, a grandpa and as a grandpa, you know what I discovered? I'm way less stressed out. All the little things that I got all wrapped around the axle over, I don't get wrapped around the axle for anymore. And you begin to, well, I like to think, grow in wisdom and understanding. And so Eli, perhaps through that, learned for certain he saw the mistakes that his sons were making. They were ungodly men, ripping people off. So God really poured into this young man, Samuel, raised him up from three years old in the, in the tabernacle area until the time that God began to speak to Samuel's heart. Remember the story, Samuel's in bed and the Lord speaks to him and Samuel jumps up and runs into Eli's room and says, Eli, what did you want me to do? Uh, I'm sleeping. Don't wake me up. Go back to bed. I didn't call you. He went back to bed three times, right? Finally, Eli goes, you know, next time you hear that voice say, Lord, your servant hears. And see what the Lord tells you to do. And that's where Samuel's work really as a judge and a prophet began. Well, then when we come to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, Samuel's an old man. He's, he's been a good judge. He's led the people. He's done all those things. His kids aren't doing so good, and the people still in their heart are unwilling to allow God to be king. And they say, we want a king. We want a ruler we can see. You ever felt that way in your relationship with God? I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for fulfilling the, the move of the Spirit and watching God work in your life and, and direct you. And there have been times in my life I've heard His voice just as though He was standing right next to me and speaking in my ear. But there is also that longing to be able to see Him, be able to touch Him, to be able to, to know Him in that way. Well, the people of Israel were no different. They wanted a ruler they could see and touch. But the problem is they wanted to put their trust in Him and not in the Lord. God understood what it was, so He gave them their king. Saul, last week we saw Saul anointed his king for the people, and then all the people went home. And Saul went back to the farm. Sometimes the anointing of God coming upon your life, he anoints you and he has a call on you and a direction for your life, but nothing immediately changes. You should do a study in Scripture and see how often that's true. Look at the Apostle Paul. We had a pretty incredible experience with the Lord, right? Light shining from heaven, the voice of God speaking to him, blinds him for a time, sends Ananias to him to touch his eyes and give him sight. Did he put him right there on the, on the missionary journey right away? No. He had this great knowledge and great understanding, but, but there was a period of time. In essence, God put him on the shelf for a while. Saul's anointed king. He's, maybe he thinks something's going to happen. He don't know how to be king. They haven't had a king their whole history never had a king never had a monarchy no government set up that way how do you build a cabinet you're the first guy so this is how he built his cabinet he went to the farm got behind an ox and did what he knew and that's where we find him tonight as we take a look in in chapter 11 
But we're introduced to a character in 1 Samuel chapter 11 that we want to remember. And this character, his name is Nahash. Nahash means the serpent, the snake. And he has a lot of things in common with another serpent or snake that tends to pester our lives. Well, look what happened. In verse 1 it says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. Quick background. Jabesh Gilead. You remember? <clears throat> Toward the end of the book of Judges, we have this, this crazy episode with the, with the Benjamites. And the Benjamites are nearly wiped out for their disobedience against God. And so there's a call that goes out to all the tribes and all the cities to send people to, to go to battle against the Benjamites. But Jabesh Gilead, the scripture says, sent nobody. They didn't send a soul. They didn't get involved. They just sat back and stayed out of it. You know, in our Christian walk with the Lord, there may be times where we try to take that posture, where we say, you know, I, I just want to stay back. I just want to watch other people minister. You know, I'm encouraged to hear what Jenny has to say or what other people are doing in ministry or, or the people that are working in Sunday school or the, the people that are helping out with youth or, or working with, uh, uh, you know, the young adults, whatever. I'm happy to sit back and watch. But listen, when God puts a call on people, He doesn't put a call on people to watch. He puts a call on people to move, to do. Jabesh Gilead doesn't want to get involved. So the Lord lets Nahash at him. Nahash is the serpent. He encamps on the outside of Jabesh Gilead. Let's, well, let's take a look and see what happens. They encamp on the outside. And so, <clears throat> as he camps outside of Jabesh Gilead, Jabesh Gilead said to Nahash, the snake, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. Hey, listen, snake. If you make a deal with us, we'll just serve you. Man, they are ready. They just declared a king. They're really uniting for the first time as a nation. And the next day, well, not quite that soon, but pretty close. Hey, these people at Jabesh Gilead, they don't want to get involved. We'll just serve the, the serpent. If we serve the serpent, well, we'll have peace. So they try to make a deal with the, the serpent. You ever try to make a deal with the devil? He doesn't make deals. He don't. He's just like this guy. Well, in fact, look what this guy says to him. Hey, let's make peace and we'll serve you. We'll be your slaves. So Nahash the Ammonite answered and said, On this condition, I'll make a covenant with you as long as I can put out your right eyes and make you a reproach to Israel. So here's my deal. I'm going to poke out your eye. Yeah, we'll make peace, and uh, we won't go to war, and you won't have to fight, and you won't have to get involved, but you're going to be half blind. And you're going to be a servant of the snake or the serpent for your whole life. And the idea behind being half blind meant you were never going to be able to rise up in rebellion against them. I mean, if he takes your right eye, most men at that time were right-handed, and... And the left hand would be the shield, and the right hand would be the sword. What happens when you lift up your shield, and you have no right eye? What do you see? Yeah, nothing. Nothing. So you're going to take their right eye. He's going to blind them. I mean, that's the way the devil works. That's the way the devil works. If we just want to sit back, and we just want to take it easy, and, and I don't really want to get involved. And I, I was, hey, I, I was that person. I was more than willing to make peace with the devil if everybody just leave me alone. Just leave me be. I sit in the back. Don't talk to me. Kathy's not allowed to talk to anybody. Soon as the preacher was done and he bowed his head to pray, I'd start elbowing her. Let's go before these people get up and want to talk. <laughs> Let's get out the door. I don't want to get involved. I just want to watch. Well, you're in a place... Where you're not able to be empowered to be who God wants you to be. And God won't leave you that way. That's why he sends Nahash. And you try to make peace with the devil, but the devil don't make a good deal, right? Is it, would it be very hard for us to tell him no? Uh, let me think. If I make peace with you, you're taking my right eye. That sounds like a painful process. 
We were in the soup kitchen today, and Kay made uh, peas and carrots. And I would say, I would rather have my eyeball dug out with a spoon than eat peas and carrots. But if Kay came at me with a spoon, I will eat the peas and carrots. <laughs> I will not have my eye dug out with a spoon. It was not hard for them to say, what are you going to do? Where, where are you going to serve? You're not going to serve. What are you going to do? So listen to what they say. So the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there's no one to save us, we'll come out to you. Now, I don't know if you catch it, but there's two things that they had learned already by verse 3. They know they need to be saved, and they know they can't save themselves. That's an important place for us to be, isn't it? To know that I need to be saved, and to know I can't save myself. The, the downside to all that for them is they didn't know if they had someone who was willing to save them. They didn't know if they had a Savior. But the Scripture lays out for us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. As John writes, he says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. For us all. Is there a Savior? For sure there's a Savior. Does He want to save? He's mighty to save. More than want to save, He's willing to save. He's willing to reach into our lives. He's willing to give opportunity and and lay those things out for us. So, Nahash gives them their week. Seven days to see if they can find a Savior. Verse 4 it says, So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. And told the news in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. They heard the, the news, and, and they begin to weep, to carry on, to mourn. Well, Saul's coming into town. Look what it says. Now, there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, Well, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. I, I got to tell you, The more I study about Saul, the more I can relate to Saul. A lot of times we grow up and we read the stories about the people's king. And we we look at the children of Israel and we look at them as that's those people. We ought to not do that. Saul, just like us. And the same ability or opportunity Saul had to succeed... We have to succeed. And the same pitfalls that would create an environment in which he's going to fail are in our own lives. And the reason God lays it out for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, these things are given to you for your admonition, for your learning. That you look and say, here's the pitfall, here's the pit. I don't want to fall in that pit. I need to learn a lesson, but I need to recognize I'm just like him and I'm just like them and I'm capable of those things. The problem, the very first problem Saul has is pride. And when we can no longer see ourselves in the stories of the Old Testament, we can't see the, the, the opportunity or the, the choices that they make that we're capable of making or the, the lukewarm attitudes that they have toward the Lord that, that we live in perhaps every day. We can't see that anymore. We're guilty of the same initial step in the opposite direction of where the Lord is leading, and that is in that attitude of pride. I could never do that. I remember seeing a young man, and his mom had asked me to spend some time counseling with him uh, many years ago, so I did. I spent time counseling with him and, and sharing with him, and I saw in him a lot of me. A lot of the same kind of attitudes I had had around his age. And I felt like he was on the same path I had been on to make the same mistakes I had made. So I told him. I told him, hey, if you stay on this road, let me tell you the future. Let me tell you where this road goes. I've walked it. 
I've been down there toward the end. Let me tell you what's there waiting for you. And I, and I shared it with him. Well, he spoke to his mom, and later on I got a phone call. And his mom wanted to make sure that I understood that there's no way ever her son would ever be able to do such a thing as that. So they tossed the council and stayed on the road. And it ended right where I told him it ended. It led right where, where I told him, I know, I've been on that road. If I tell you guys I'm driving down 4100 and I tell you I'm headed in one direction or the other, you can tell me where it goes. You've been on the road. It was the same way with him. Listen, we want to have eyes to see. These stories are here. These examples are here for us to take, pull apart, and learn from. So we see the humility here of Saul. He's not lording it over to the people. He's just at the farm. He's not thinking more highly of himself than a man ought to think. Isn't that what the scripture declares to us in Philippians chapter 2? Not to think of yourself more highly than others. To think of others first. Not how does this affect me. But every one of us, if we're honest, every one of us, that creeps up. It does. Someone calls you. You recognize the number. Hmm. Don't think I want to answer that phone call. Funny thing is, when you call somebody else, they're doing the same thing. I don't know if I want to answer that one either. We want to... It's important that we learn to be sensitive to the Spirit and its direction. His direction. As the Spirit guides us, as the Spirit leads us, as the Spirit lays out for us, here is the direction I would have you go. This is where I would have you move. This is who I would have you share with. This is who I would have you... We want to be sensitive to that. Here's Saul. He doesn't know any of that stuff, guys. You don't have to know it. You just have to be willing to obey. Saul's out following the herd. He's the king, but he doesn't have a palace Nothing set up, no crazy organization yet. This is the beginning stages. He hears the word, and it says in verse 6, And the Spirit of God came upon Saul. The Spirit of God came upon Saul. And we already know that the Spirit of God was with Saul. The, The Scripture laid out for us, In earlier chapters, as he was anointed with oil, that the Spirit came upon him. It was empowering him for service. And the same phraseology is used here that's used in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit has a threefold ministry, if you will. In the first part, before you're ever saved, the Holy Spirit comes alongside para. He's next to you. He's he's wooing. He's, He's convicting you of sin. He's... He's doing that work to call you unto the Savior. And when we hear that call and open our heart, the Holy Spirit comes in. And He moves from para to en. He's in you. And it is possible for the Holy Spirit to be in you and for you to never be submitted to His or listening to His call, His direction, His leading, His guiding. The Holy Spirit's in you. You have the guarantee of your salvation. You're squared away and you're set. In John chapter 20, Jesus said to his disciples, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand, Jesus is God. When God said, let there be light, what happened? Light didn't wait a week or two or 50 days. Light came, right? The Bible says all of creation was brought to be by the voice of Jesus Christ. He spoke it, and it came. Everything that was made, he made. Colossians lays those things out for us. He said, receive you the Holy Spirit. To receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in their life. But then he told them, abide here until what? Until you are endowed with power. The third part of the Holy Spirit's ministry, the epi. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit always comes for service, not for entertainment. 
It always comes for service, to serve, to share, to, to equip, to reach out, to pray for that girl that, that the Lord's laying on your heart to reach out to. Give you the power to have the words of encouragement, to share the, the, the scripture, to give into you the, the gift of prophecy where you have the right word or a word of knowledge or whatever the case may be. The Holy Spirit comes to empower you to do that. Saul's walking behind a herd. Everybody calls Saul that r- lousy king. Not any more than we're l- the lousy subjects of God. And he's walking along and he hears what's going on. And the scripture says the Holy Spirit comes upon him. That epi, that overflowing of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, equipping him to be the king God always meant him to be. God didn't call Saul so he'd fail. God knew Saul would fail, but he didn't call him for him to fail. He called Saul, equipped Saul, filled Saul with the power of the Holy Spirit. Look what happens. He's filled with the Spirit when he heard the news and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took the oxen. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers. Now, it's the second time something like this has happened in the scriptures. Well, the first time it was a man's concubine who had been murdered by the Benjamites. And he cut her up and sent her out and said, if you don't come. Saul had the sense, at least, to do it to an oxen, although... I don't fully understand the purpose behind it. But what I know, the Holy Spirit came upon him. What do you mean? You mean, Jackie, the Holy Spirit would call us to do something we don't fully understand? And we don't have all the answers to before we do it? Sometimes. Sometimes. We do it. We all have opportunity to say no, right? Don't we? Ah, it's my voice. That's me. I shared with you before, I have a friend, a very, very dear, a a man I respect greatly. Um, And he has a pretty uh, impactful ministry. Um, One time it was in L.A., now he's in Galveston, Texas. But he shared this story with me as he was just getting on track, just walking with the Lord, and many of you, I've, I've shared it before, but he was out for a walk one day, remember? He's out for a walk, walking down the road, he's walking down the road, he's just walking down the sidewalk, and, and thinking about the, the direction God was calling him to, and ultimately God calls him to start a ministry called Friendships, but, but he's walking down, and, he, and he's got this, this prayer going, and as he's walking down the road, the Lord just impresses on his heart, the craziest idea. Would you open up that mailbox and yell, Jesus loves you in the mailbox. <sighs> that is the dumbest idea I've ever had come into my head out of the blue. So he kept walking. Right? And the voice gets a little bit louder. Open up the mailbox and yell, Jesus loves you in the mailbox. And it's like, just like what Jenny was sharing. All it feels like in his mind is neon sign and arrows pointing and, and the mailbox is highlighted. Huh. And he got all the way down to the next house. And he stopped. Okay, Lord. Walks back. Looks around. <laughs> lifts up the mailbox. Jesus loves you. Slams me as fast as he can walk. Boy, I don't want nobody to see me. And sure enough, he got down to the other driveway, and the dude in that house come running out the door and down the sidewalk and said, Mister, Mister, Mister. <sighs> Somebody saw me. Now what do I do? And the man ran over to him and says, I, I need to know, why did you yell, Jesus loves you in my mailbox? <laughs> oh, man. They're going to they're gonna call the paddy wagon on me? You know, I was walking by your house, and I just really felt like God impressed on my heart. I really tried not to do it, but God impressed on my heart that I needed to to yell, Jesus loves you in your mailbox. Oh. Well, I was just sitting right in there, and 
my living room and and I'm just really crying out to God. We're going through a hard time, you know, and I'm struggling. I, I won't lie to you. I'm struggling with, with ideas of, you know, why are we here? Should I even be alive anymore? You know, it's not, I didn't have a rope from the ceiling or a gun in my, between my knees. I'm just struggling with this concept that is God real and is God really out there? And I, I cried out to God and I said, Lord, if you're, if you're real, show me. And he said, right, right then. I look out my window and you yell in my mailbox, Jesus loves you. Sometimes the call of God, we don't understand. And it seems like the craziest idea in the world. And you can come up with a hundred reasons why not to do it. I'm not cutting up a yoke of oxen, man. That's two oxen. That's two giant bulls. That's a lot of meat. And besides that, those are my tractors. How do you think I plow my field? How do you think I do all that stuff? It's like God saying, disassemble your car and send the different pieces, your carburetor and your transmission and the bolts from this and that, to everybody in the entire nation calling them to battle. That's what it's like. Saul did it. But the cool thing is, the exciting thing is, whenever you do something and it's what god's directed you if listen if it's not what god's directed you to do you're going to yell in the mailbox they're going to arrest you and they're going to put you in a little room if it's what god's calling you to do it's going to impact somebody's life and you don't always have to see that by the way you know that right god doesn't owe you the explanation we owe him our obedience so here they are. The Spirit of God's upon him. He cuts up this yoke. He sends it out and he says, Now whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, this is what's going to happen to them. What happened to the oxen. But look at the next phrase. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent. Hey, read the book of Judges. See how many times they've got fellows go out and call. Gideon. Moved by the Spirit of God, almighty oh, man of valor. Now, God's proven a point with Gideon, right? But when he comes out and he calls all the nation, 30,000 people show up. Now, God said, that's too many. We know the story. Whittles them down to 300 and still delivers. The point is, only 30,000 came. It's a small fraction of the population of the nation of Israel. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul. He's obedient to the direction of God, even though we don't understand it, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. And he sends out the call, and the people come out with one consent, and 330,000 people show up. Do you see the difference? The Lord directs, guides, leads, and empowers him. Now, does that mean when God called Gideon and he whittled him down to 300, that's less a work of the Spirit? Because there was more people who came out for Saul? Listen, understand, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Whether God delivers by few or many, it really has nothing to do with you. And so when your heart wells up with pride because you look out and you say, look at the numbers. Look at how many people came. And your head begins to puff up. You're missing the point. You really didn't have anything to do with that. You're a vessel a tool in the hands of the master. And he can save through many or few. Amen? Amen. We, and we need to have that view. Hey, God's the one who does, does the work. Oh, that's, see, that's where Saul's going to trip. That's where we trip too. We get out in the community and we sit down and we start talking about church. Well, where do you go to church? Oh, I go here. Where do you go to church? Oh, I go there. Boy, there sure is a lot of people at your church. Uh, I guess. But Lord says that many are few. I grew up in a church that fit inside of this building. And our youth group, on the biggest night of youth group, at the craziest time, we had seven. Woo! We we're smoking. And all us kids... We wanted to go somewhere else where it's bigger, you know, because bigger is always better. 
the seven kids in that youth group, every single one of them is in full-time ministry. Hey, that's a powerful work of God. 100%? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. doesn't matter. Numbers don't matter, right? It don't matter. It don't matter if it's full or it's not full. It doesn't matter if it's busting the seams and you've got to add another building. You know, I'll be honest. I hope we never have two services, ever. Maybe I'm selfish. Well, maybe. Take maybe out. I'm selfish. <laughs> I'm selfish. I like to know everybody. I like us all to be together. I like it. I like it. That's, that's what I like. But really, it's not a part of the factor. What does God want? Whatever God wants. And whatever he does, he did. It's not me. It's not you. It's not Fritz and a flaming guitar. It is a work of God. It's a work of God. It always will be. As soon as it becomes a work of men, it needs to fail. And so here, Saul, they come out. One heart, one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000. And the men of Judah, 30,000. A lot of Judah showed up. A lot of Judah showed up. But Judah, 330,000 men. Here we go. They're going to battle. And it says, And they said to the messengers who came, This is what you will say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Now remember, Jabesh-Gilead wouldn't show up when they were called. They were standing on the sidelines. They were just wanted to be watchers. Now they find themselves embroiled in this, in this battle between the snake and the spirit. And here, they, as they're embroiled, they get this message. Tomorrow, by this time, or by the time the sun is hot, you'll have help. And the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. That is the understatement of the century. And they were glad. Listen, when you know you need salvation, and you know you can't save yourself, as soon as you also know there is a Savior, you will be glad. And that's how they were. There is a Savior. There is a Savior. And He's coming to save. He's mighty to save. Therefore, the men of Jabesh, they said, Tomorrow we'll come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now, <clears throat> some people look at that and say, The people of Jabesh Gilead lied. No, they didn't lie. They said, Tomorrow we're coming out. They didn't say how many. 330,000 armed, ready for battle. They didn't mention that part. I don't know that they're required to. They said, Tomorrow we're going to come out. And I'm sure the snake thought, Yeah, man, get the spoons ready. We're going to be plucking out eyes all day long. He thinks he's got the victory, but he has another thing coming. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. Saul had a strategy. The scripture doesn't lay out for us anything about that strategy. Sometimes people, they read this and they say, well then, it's okay, Saul put together all his plans. Here's my take. Saul was filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit led him to develop a strategy that divided the people into three companies, and that's how they went at it. Praise God. He told Joshua, back in their history, march around the city. Right? Whatever, however, do you know that God doesn't win the battle the same way every time? As soon as we think that he, God has to work the same way all the time, we are, yeah, we're, we're messing with his sovereignty, man. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. I've seen God heal, and I've seen God not. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I see, but I've never seen God not in power when we ask him to be empowered. Jesus said, if you know how to give good gifts to your children and you're evil, how much more will your Father in heaven do what? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. I guarantee he answers. I guarantee he empowers. 
then it's just up to us. Walk in obedience and recognize the voice of our master, right? Well, he's got a strategy. He divides people into three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and they killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. That's a pretty big whooping. No two soldiers were left together. That's, that's well scattered. They're sent out. They're divided. And the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Well, you remember when Saul was anointed king, there were some guys who said, We're not going to follow that, Yahoo. Who says he should rule? Okay, let's go back to lesson number one. It really didn't have anything to do with Saul. Really don't have anything to do with him. Saul is a willing tool in the hands of the master. They need to learn to see that their deliverer, their savior, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Almighty God. It's not Saul. Saul's obedient to the call of God, and that's commendable. But God's the one who gives a victory, and and in very quick measure, Saul says. Not a man will be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. I love that Saul did that, man. I love that Saul. Here they are. Now, chapter 13, he's going to stumble. But right here, man, praise the Lord. Saul's got a victory, great opportunity for a big swelled head. Oh, we just whooped him. We really did it. Look at all the people who came together. I mean, don't you see there's an opportunity for pride? And here these people come and say, oh, just point to the guys who weren't supporting you, Saul, and we'll take them out right now. And Saul says, man, don't you touch them. The Lord saved today. Man, that's great news. Great news. You want to know how that sounds in Hebrew? Yehoshua. Boy, if you want to say it in Greek, it sounds like this. Jesus. That's what it means. God saved. The Lord is our salvation. The Lord accomplished salvation. Man, it's exciting. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So they already had one coronation. Now they're going to have a coronation where all the nation is together. The Lord has provided an opportunity for the whole nation to be united around this king, Saul. The king that the people wanted before God was willing to give them. And we know, we know. Moses talked about them having a a kingdom long ago. But that kingdom was set up for the Mashiach Nagid, the the Messiah to be king. They couldn't wait that long. So, they have the king that they deserve. The Lord brings them a king and he empowers them with the spirit Everything he needs to succeed. Everything he needs to succeed. Every one of us today have everything we need to succeed at whatever the Lord is directing and calling us to. But it will not be by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. It will be the empowerment of God's Spirit to equip you to get up like Jabesh Gilead off the sideline and say, I'm not going to watch anymore. I want to be involved. I want, to, I want to be involved in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. What was he talking about? You remember? Oh, you know, all the things we need, like clothes and food and a job. And, and the Lord said, well, seek first the kingdom of God, and all those other things will be added unto you. Well, we do it the other way most of the time, don't we? We seek financial stability and all that stuff to be okay. And then we seek the kingdom of God. He says, seek the kingdom of God first. Focus on the Lord and His, and He will guide, He will lead, and He will bring those things. The scripture lays out, He knows what you have need of before you ask. In verse 15 it says, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Man, that's what an awesome place. An awesome place to come. Awesome victory. An incredible move of God's Spirit. 
That's not just the Old Testament and that's, you know, the New Testament, God stopped working like that. He still works like that. He still wants to do that. He still does. I'm excited about Jenny. I'm excited about missionaries in our own country, for crying out loud. We ain't got no business sending them anyplace else. We're pretty screwed up. (laughs) We need them here. We need men and women to get up off the sideline of watching and allow the Spirit of God to empower them to be who God called them to be, whatever that is, and be willing to fulfill that perfect work of the Lord. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you so much for tonight, an opportunity to just hear the the testimony as Jenny shared, the work that you're doing in ASU, Lord God. And God, I do pray for our young people. I pray for our future. I pray, God, that you would indeed pour out your spirit and, and do incredible things, Lord. And God, I pray that we would realize that we're not just here to watch. We're here to be a part, to fulfill our purpose within the body of Christ, whether that purpose be something that everyone sees or not. I have never seen my pancreas, but I'm glad it's there. Lord, I pray, God, that we would all just have that desire. Lord, I don't want to be on the sideline. I don't want to just be, you know, somebody watching God move from from the back row. I want to be somebody who's moving for God on the back row. Who's doing what God's called me to do. Being empowered by the Spirit to be and to enjoy the victory that Saul had. To learn the lessons of the things that that pulled him down. But to also learn the lessons of the things that held him up. The power of God in a humble man's heart. Man, what a beautiful thing. For that matter, the power of God in a humble woman's heart. In a humble child's heart. (laughs) For you can save by many or few. By strong or by the weak. By the wise or by the foolish. Lord, I do pray that you would move in a mighty way. Impact our community and God, get us off the sidelines and in the game. We ask, Lord Jesus, above all things, that your name would always be glorified and magnified beyond everything else we do. We pray, Lord, that you would rule and reign in this place. You are our king. And we, tools in the master's hand. So use us, Lord, and impact your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.